Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome to New Books in Sociology, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ritupanna, and today I'm going to be in conversation with Matri Chaudhary. Matri Chaudhary has retired from the Center for the Study of Social Systems, CSSS, Jawaharlal Nehru University, JNU, New Delhi. Her research interests have been on the making of the public discourse in modern India, her early work focused on nationalism, colonialism, and feminism in India. Since the early 1990s, she has been looking at the changing nature of public discourse in the context of both neoliberalism and the rise of majoritarianism. She is the author of several well-known books, Sociology in India, The Practice of Sociology, and Refashioning India, Gender, Media, and a Transformed Public Discourse. In today's conversation, we are going to discuss her book, Doing Theory, Locations, Hierarchies, and Disjunctions, which she has co-edited with Manish Thakur and published by Orient Black Swan in 2018. Professor Chaudhary, I welcome you to this discussion. Thank you so much for you know giving us your time. Thank you, Ritipanna, for this opportunity. Thank you very much. Okay, so just to kickstart our discussion, let me ask you by, you know, uh, trying to understand the main motivation that you had behind putting this edited book together. Yeah, Ritipanna, uh, my main motivation actually stemmed from my teaching experience as well as my experience as a student uh, of sociology. So the classroom was very central uh, in prompting me to think about theory. Uh, so I have written about this and often reflected that in the early years when I was attending my master's program in sociology, I did not have sociology in my bachelor degree. I found theory something which was alien and extremely difficult to grasp. I found uh, bits and pieces of it extremely interesting, challenging, but I somehow couldn't put my fingers to it. What is it exactly that we are doing? And why are we doing it? And somehow this answer uh, eluded me because whenever you talked about this question, people would give you particular references. Okay, you can read Raymond Arrow, you can read Stephen Lukes, you can read the originals of other theory. But the question which was prompting me that why do we theorize? Why do we have to understand theory? So the classroom was a central reason and when I started teaching, I encountered the same problem, uh, that why were we theorizing? And I often found very differential responses to theory classes. So you had one set of students who somehow found it very exciting, interesting, and uh, they wanted to get involved in it, they were quick. And for the others, there seemed to be a certain kind of block, very similar to the kind of block I felt when I was a student. Now, how do we sort of understand this block? Is it a cognitive block that we are not able to understand things which are abstract? Because this is an explanation often given that it's abstraction, it's not concrete, and therefore theorizing is difficult. But the related question is that if theorizing is so central to understanding the social, then we must have an explanation. It's not that the explanation is not there implicitly and very often explicitly in uh, sociological writings, including the classical writings and in textbooks, but somehow that did not get foregrounded in discussions on theory. So this was the broad context, a kind of hazy, 
confused sense of why we are doing theory, which really prompted me to engage with it. Right. So could you please also comment on the relevance of theory in social sciences, particularly sociology? How do you think theory becomes central in understanding the social? Uh, in the interesting thing part, uh, the interesting thing of social sciences and the interesting thing in sociology is obviously that we do not have an agreed upon understanding. We don't have uh, agreed upon consensus that this is the reason why we theorize. Uh, for example, uh, in uh, you know traditions which are more closely associated with the social anthropological tradition, the ethnographic tradition, uh, you know we notice there is a certain view that it's the fieldwork which is going to throw up the relevant information. It is the fieldwork uh, which the field which will be the answer to the questions that you have. The field would have. Uh, ability in itself uh, to tell the tales that you're looking for. And I recall a particular incident, and I think Professor A.M. Shah had mentioned this, that uh, when he was uh, you know, about to do his research or was already researching, uh, in a discussion with Professor M.N. Srinivas, where Professor M.N. Srinivas mentioned that don't bother too much with theory, go to the field. And the field would have the answer. Now, in a certain sense, that is true. The long field work do our thick descriptions are able to tell a story about the way society is constructed or how society operates. But at the same time, the field is often not enough. And I remember uh, reviewing probably one of these writings where I mentioned that if the field told the whole story, then it probably would not have taken so many decades for gender to have been discovered as a category to understand the field. I mean, if the field was comprehensive, told everything that it had to, then why did we have a particular point of time when we said, oh, gender was invisible, women's voice was invisible, we were looking at women only in transaction terms and not as legitimate subjects of inquiry. So there was a story which was deeper and it is that story which I sort of started getting interested. It was nothing unique or original that I was doing, just thinking through. And I often find uh, Durkheim's rules of sociological method a very interesting point of departure because he puts it across clearly, unambiguously, that sociology did not have to, uh, you know, wait. I mean, society or human beings or social beings did not have to wait for the discipline of sociology to emerge to have concepts and categories. Human beings categorize, human beings conceptualize, human beings think. So human beings would know right from the beginning what is hot, what is cold, what is fire, what is a child, what is an adult, what is an old age, what is sacred, what is profane. So human beings are already conceptualizing. Human beings have to conceptualizing their concept-bearing agents. And likewise, somebody who normally in textbooks is posited as against uh, Durkheim, somebody like Marx, uh, it also departs from a similar point from a premise that human beings are not just active human beings who labor to produce 
what they have to eat or produce to consume or produce to survive or produce to make the means of production. But they're also people who conceptualize. So they can imagine even as they produce, they have language, they're symbolic beings, they communicate. Now this aspect of human beings means that we are already not just inanimate or animate objects, but we are animate objects which are con which we are conceptualizing, which we have concepts. Sociology uses the word common sense to describe these concepts. Uh, and somebody like Marx would say that you have to get rid of these preconceptions. You have to get rid of ideologies that you have about reality and go to the concrete context within which reality operates. And Durkheim's in a similar vein says, get rid of preconceptions, get rid of idols. When you study religion, don't proceed with the idea that you have of religion as a believer or a disbeliever, but you go to society and look, and therefore he brings in the concept of social fact, which is a concept, which is a theory, or Marx goes to the question of, uh, you know, production, relations of production, social relations of production, ensemble of social relations, how human beings produce. So here, what I'm trying to say is that theory it is impossible to do sociology or social sciences without theory. It's simply not possible because if we try to do sociology or we try to understand society without a theoretical orientation, we are more likely to understand society from the natural predispositions that we have of society. Uh, for example, uh, you know, going back to my favorite, uh, you know, example of the classroom, uh, I would be teaching and I would often, uh, you know, try out a hypothesis and I would ask the classroom that supposing I have to make a statement, a hypothetical statement, uh, like uh, the greater, uh, the larger number or the higher the girl gets educated or the more women are educated, the rate of divorces increase. The greater the education that women have, the chances of divorce is higher. Uh, now, when I put that forward, most people would feel un unsure whether they would agree or not agree. But a lot of people who would have a less problematic understanding of society would say that's true. And empirically, it probably could be demonstrated that it's more likely uh, that women who are educated, who have a choice for earning, uh, would be in a position uh, to break their marriage if they're not unhappy with their marriage. But the question is not empirical. The question is, why did I not formulate the same hypothetical question as that there is a certain inequality in the way men and women are trained in the ideas of gender justice and equality. So men are lagging behind women in what should be a gender just behavior. So it could be easily reformulated that it is the lagging behind or the inadequacy of men to be gender just, which leads to the possibility of greater divorce. 
So what happens in the first hypothesis, I make a kind of unproblematic statement stemming from my own common sense, which is usually prejudiced, which may be empirically true, but the latter can also be empirically true, but what is it which I'm giving causal explanation to? So even in these simple, small examples, you know that each of us already have a theory of society, not a sociological theory of society, not so to say within quotes, a scientific theory of society, but we have a common sense understanding of society. And one of the greatest uh, dangers uh, to the practice of sociology is a certain convergence between commonsensical sociology and theoretical sociology. So this is something which I'll probably come back to Ritupanna as we go along in our discussion, that I see theory as central to sociology, uh, a or a theoretical uh, social, a sociology which has no theory is not sociology at all. And whether it's explicated or it is something which is implicit. Uh, you know, is something maybe which I'll come back a little later in our discussion. Right. Uh, of course, I think the th uh, next question is also interconnected because, you know, I wanted to know what would be some of the common perceptions that exist about theory? Yeah, in fact, to answer that question, Ritupana, maybe I'd have to go back to your first question about the main motivation, uh, because I have noticed that there are very strong perceptions which exist about theory. Uh, for example, there is a hierarchy in social science knowledge. So people who do theory are somehow supposed to be smarter, better, uh, you know, more superior to people who only do empirical um, studies, you know. So there is a hierarchy and people from different kind of vantage points have commented upon this hierarchy. This hierarchy could be vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, the global uh, you know, context that in the West or in the global North, they theorize and in the uh, global South, uh, we do empirical research. So people who formulate theories in the North, they come and test their theories in the global South. So this could be one kind of hierarchy. Another kind of hierarchy, say somebody like Gopal Guru talks about, uh, you know, about the whole question of, uh, you know, the Brahminical notion of theorizing and the question of uh, caste, the actual institutional dynamics of society and its implication for theorizing or for Dalit social sciences at this. So there is a common perception that theory is somehow superior, exalted. There's another uh, perception, which is the more difficult a theory is, uh, it is somehow more superior. So the more, uh, there is a certain sense that everybody cannot access theory, everybody cannot theorize, and some people uh, have special expertise to theorize. So this is the other perception which exists. Uh, there's also a perception of cutting edge theory. Uh, kind that, uh, you know, you must be familiar with this, what has really happened yesterday. And to go back to very dated concepts of theory is somehow not accepted. I feel very strongly against this kind of cutting edge theoretical frameworks because uh, probably in any kind of knowledge building, uh, I'm sure it would be true of natural science, but perhaps even more for social science, we really rest on the shoulders of our past or ancestors, so to say. Uh, 
Knowledge is cumulative. It doesn't mean that we just keep building and we don't critique. We critique, <coughs> we, uh, you know, reconstitute, we question, uh, but we have to build upon an existing body of knowledge. And one of the things which I find very disconcerting is that a certain kind of <coughs> ignorance about what has happened in the past or a very ready uh, acceptance that all, all that is dated. We don't need classical theories anymore. We don't need to know what Indian sociologists wrote in the 1950s or 60s or 70s or 80s. Uh, what we really need to know uh, are the buzzwords. Uh, and this whole question of buzzwords uh, replacing theoretical framework is extremely worrying. And I use the term in the book, the ornamental usage of theory. Ornamental meaning that uh, you feel theory is just set of words and you sort of use them uh, <laughs> as like decorative elements uh, in the exposition that you have. Uh, so these are some of these perceptions and they need to be question. The other thing is, of course, a kind of dichotomy between theory and empirical research, that you can actually do empirical research uh, and come to the question of theory only at the end. And or uh, a related, uh, you know, perception that theory is generalization. And maybe we could discuss this a little more as we move forward. Okay, so uh, what are the socio-historical contexts in which theories emerge and how are they adopted in other contexts? Yeah, you know, uh, uh, if you notice in the book, uh, you know, there are two aspects, uh, two aspects which uh, structure the book. And these two aspects are actually in the title of the other book, which I wrote on the practice of sociology, Institutional and Intellectual Trends. So my argument is when we look at theories, uh, we have to locate them in two frames. One is, uh, you know, the, the kind of uh, ideas that theories draw from, uh, the theoretical legacies that uh, they draw from, you know. Uh, so what kind of... Uh, philosophies, what kind of ideas of knowledge, what kinds of domain assumptions uh, do certain kinds of theories come from, which is intellectual. But there's also an institutional context. Uh, and I think the institutional context can be also divided in two kinds, macro and micro, larger socio-historical context, and the micro context of how uh, we actually teach, uh, do the ordinary thing of uh, writing syllabus, uh, transmitting knowledge, the kind of questions which we uh, you know, put for our examination, uh, the kind of uh, details which are important. Let me just elaborate what I mean by the social historical context or the macro context. And this book, The Doing Theory, has a lot of very interesting chapters uh, which talk about the social historical context. First, let's go back to the larger social historical context of sociology. And all of us know that when we teach sociology, or at least uh, I hope it still works that way, when we talk about the emergence and growth of uh, sociology, we often talk of three developments. Uh, one is the Enlightenment context, one is the French Revolution, and one is industrial capitalism. Uh, assuming that, uh, you know, these three were social historical contexts where the mode of thinking changed, 
from a theological, metaphysical to a scientific, to a reason-based question where you ask questions where you did not think anything was sacred enough not to ask questions, to, to interrogate a certain kind of modernist impulses, uh, you know, which were defining this. Uh, industrial capitalism in the sense that a lot of the questions which emerged uh, with the classical theories emerged in that context. And this is an example I often give. Uh, look at these three concepts, which the three classical theories which we often use. Uh, Marx uses the concept alienation. Uh, Weber uses the concept estrangement. Durkheim uses the concept anomie. And all these concepts actually try to capture a sensibility of human subjectivities uh, when they confront with the dramatic and far-reaching transformations which industrial capitalism wrought in their lives. You know, the livelihood, the urban cities, migration, sanitation, displacement, anonymity, a way of life had changed completely, uh, you know, that all that was solid sort of, you know, melted, everything that was sacred uh, changed. So the social historical contexts are very important. Now, what happens in our context, the Indian context, is a, a question which would be often asked, that we are in India, we are in the 21st century, almost 25 years gone now, and why should we read these people? Their social historical contexts are not important for us if we theorize. But if you look at, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, some of the issues remain the same. Whether it's industrial capitalism or whether it's the question of reason or evidence-based research remains. Just like uh, the question of French Revolution, which brings in the relationship of social science and democracy. Uh, remains. It is not irrelevant. It remains in our context. And more importantly, our context was defined by the same social historical context. So when, it, when in the West, they had uh, the beginning of industrial capitalism, it was almost simultaneously that we were colonized. Our colonial history, which defines who we are even today, was embedded in the history of industrial capitalism there. Our interrogation of colonialism also drew from texts from that period. So when we said, if everybody's free, why are we not free? Ideas of democratic uh, you know, freedom. Social reformers through the 19th century engaged with the question of interrogation, uh, rethinking tradition, bringing back reason, you know, very, very fundamentally in our context. So any kind of dichotomy between their social historical context and our social con historical context is false. The social historical context was the same. Our location in the social historical context as colonized subjects and them as colonizers was different. And it is this dynamic, which is part of what we mean by theorizing. We can't just describe them. We have to have a theory which would be able to understand the linkage between these developments. So social historical contexts are very, very important. I mentioned the distinction between macro and micro. So the macro is the larger colonialism, nationalism, you know, development, capitalism. Uh, 
Micro is the way we operate in our everyday life, you know. So in our colonized world, we always had a sense of admiration and awe for what people in the global north did. And we obviously borrowed heavily from uh, the global north and Western theory and put it in our text. We never even had the confidence of engaging with traditions of theory, which may have been present, may not have been present in our own context. This has changed over the decades, uh, but this is something, again, historical context are important. And the micro context are important. Just a point, I may come back to it later, the micro context, where when we write a syllabi on theory, uh, we have a culture which draws from a larger rote culture where we have a kind of add, uh, you know, you want to add topics to the syllabus. We don't see a syllabus as a text, uh, which is either representing uh, the discipline at its very best or the issues which confront society in the contemporary or in the past, but we see it as a kind of agglomeration of topics. So if you have at one point, you would say, okay, we must have Marx, Weber and Durkheim. And then somebody says, okay, but feminism has become important. And there is, okay, we must add some feminist theory. And then somebody says, postmodern has become important. And you say, okay, we must add postmodern. And somebody else says, uh, now it's decolonial theory and you must add some. There's a problem with this kind of additions in the syllabi, because along with the additions, you have to engage with the past. What is the problem with the feminists had with classical theorists? What was the tension? That tension has to be captured. Now, there is a sense, especially in our parts of the world, where people feel, oh, people won't understand. You're making it too complicated. And again, I have very strong reservation against that idea. I don't think uh, this assumes that people are stupid, students won't follow. I don't think the issue is that. The issue is how, what is the practice by which you communicate theory? How do we contextualize theory? How do we make theory come alive? How do we see theory as a process and not as a product? And this is something maybe I'll speak a little bit more about it being a process and not a product and to see to your question about what is the social historical context is that theory is not something which is, you know, just drops down from the heavens. Theory is constituted in society, just like you and I are, just like languages are, so is theory. And therefore this contextualization becomes extremely important. Right. And, you know, this conversation also brings me to ask you if there is any indigenous theory within sociology in India. Uh, you know, the indigenous theory, uh, there has always been a trend of indigenous theory within sociology. Ritapuna, you'd be very familiar with the debates and contribution to Indian sociology about foreign uh, of sociology in India, uh, you know, and the Indology, uh, you know, perspective. So uh, the initial years, even somebody like Dumo, or where you basically talked about a textual interpretation of Indian society seen as synonymous with Hindu society. And then you have a critique of the text view from the field view. So there has been always a kind of claim for indigenous theory in Indian sociology. Uh, it's a complicated story uh, because one, again, talk about context, in the colonial context, it would be but natural that there would be a desire to speak against 
colonial rule or dominance of colonial categories or categories of the global north. But the worrying part in contemporary India is that instead of being a serious engagement with theory in this in our country, what you have is a kind of idol worship or an ancestor worship where you pick up somebody and say, well, oh, so-and-so represents indigenous theory. So you're not engaging with them. Theor theoretical reflection means engaging, critiquing, agreeing in parts, disagreeing in parts. Here, what is happening is that you say, uh, take somebody and say, I think there have been trends now to bring in a particular kind of scholars and saying they are the indigenous, you know. Indigenous itself is a complicated term of what is indigenous. Uh, it has been our feeling that many of us have not engaged or not equipped to engage with traditions uh, in our scholarship, uh, where we look at, say, I think in questions of grammar, there have been very interesting works in what would be called indigenous or pre-Western traditions in India. But that kind of work is far and few between. What we not normally have is a very pedestrian, uh, you know, drawing in of somebody uh, who says something which is a little different from the others. There have been scholars like A.K. Saran who had a completely different and a very complicated take uh, against Western theory. Uh, but again, it would be important not to just put A.K. Saran in the syllabus, but to engage with what A.K. Saran is talking about. And I think this dialogue and that engagement is very, very critical. Right. So uh, do you think that doing theory is a choice? I think I've answered it to, uh, to a certain extent when I mentioned the common sense uh, theorizing that we already already have categories. So when we say religious, we say gender, we say man, women, family, kinship, uh, we use it in our everyday uh, conversations. Uh, even if you're not a sociologist, we use these terminology. And we also make judgments about what is right, what is wrong, nationalism, patriotism, good of the country, uh, we all have common sense ideas with which we operate. Since we already have common sense ideas, uh, theory make, uh, theorizing is not a choice. Theorizing is a very careful, systematic, reflective uh, way of understanding how society is constructed. So when we do sociology and I say, I'm going to use the word community, I have to explain what I mean by the category community. But if I'm talking to you as a friend, uh, uninformed by sociology, and we say, oh, in our community this happens, I, I assume you know what we mean by community. Uh, you know, and we both may have certain kind of assumptions, which is a shared assumption, the stock of knowledge, which uh, is talked about in sociology, and that stock of knowledge is uncritical. It's necessary for us to operate in society, but being necessary is not the same as saying that this is the same as doing sociological theory. So I think it's not a choice at all. And I think the more clearly we affirm on that part, the less likely we are going to make a mistake about dichotomizing theory with empirical research. So could you also please comment on the structure of the book and its organization? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've sort of been on a tangent talking about this theory. Uh, the book is a wonderful collection of writings by scholars much, much younger than me, divided into four parts. 
part four is looking at, you know, you asked me the question on indigenous, and the part one is called theorizing the indigenous, national, local, post-colonial. So there are four words trying to understand this moment of trying to articulate in a language which is different from the dominant hegemonic language. And each of them, I would argue, would have certain kind of domain assumption, indigenous, national, local, post-colonial. Part two is talking about the gaps which exist in sociology. And to go back to a question of social historical context, here we are looking at industrial sociology, media and sociology in our country. And uh, you know, there's uh, scholars like Adra or Jesna in their chapter show how the Indian state and the nation building paradigm led to a certain kind of industrial sociology and a certain kind of media studies. So you have a certain role of the state in a certain kind of studies. We also have two pieces in the same section uh, on the schism or the dichotomy between theory and method uh, that very often, even in the way we teach, we teach theory as though it has no connection with method and method as though it has no connection with theory. So discrete parts. And the fourth is uh, the new kind of research which started taking place in the developmental sector, NGO. In this book, it's on the media organization to show how research is done there and how it is different from academic research and the assumptions which operate there. Part three is very interesting. It's ethnography and theory, because there's very often assumption that uh, what is the relationship between ethnography and theory? And there are three parts there, one talking about prison life and the assumptions of what is social and what is order. Uh, the other bringing in the concept of the ethnography of affect, the non-linguistic in your fieldwork. And the third, when we talk about ethics and epistemology, uh, this is a dense and a wonderful section of the book, and I would be very happy if readers could look at it. Part four, uh, we have about, we had one about social historical context, and this is about how there are, again, disjunctions. Uh, because Ritupana, the book is called Theory, Doing Theory, Location, Hierarchies, and Disjunction. The disjunction me, uh, is like, you may be talking about caste, uh, you may be even talking about marginalized caste, but in the manner in which you teach, you reproduce certain kind of caste hierarchies. So this is a piece where it brings in the question of how do we theorize experience? And a very interesting piece by Pushpesh Kumar, where he tries to show the dichotomy which anti-caste activists who are also sociology teachers would have. that they, they look at different kinds of literature when they are in their role as anti-caste Ambedkarite activists and when they're teaching caste within the classroom. So he tries to look into what are the dynamics which make people make that kind of compartmentalization. He has sense work which is trying to look at why do we have certain kind of texts in a syllabi. For example, Pareto is uh, quite commonly taught in, uh, you know, in the syllabus in West Bengal, North Bengal, and she sort of tries and traces how did Pareto come and establish uh, himself in our syllabus. And the final one uh, is about reading theory backwards, which uh, I've written on reflecting back by looking at the ordinary uh, textbooks to figure out, is there a manner in which we can look at the ordinary textbook and figure out what is the domain theoretical assumption which structured the book? 
So this is the broad structure of the book. Okay, so just a few follow-up things. How important do you think is the question of reflexivity in the book? Uh, I think reflexivity is uh, important, reflexivity and criticality. Uh, again, talking about common perception, there's a common perception uh, that being reflexive is uh, just to reflect, think and reflect. Uh, the argument in this book and the broader argument of doing theory is that reflectivity can't just sitting back and reflecting. All of us can reflect, but we have to read. Uh, we have to be already theoretically informed to reflect. What are we reflecting? Say reflecting about new anthropological methods, object and subject. Uh, uh, you know, how do we look at people we are interviewing? Uh, what is the reflective turn in society? or anthropology, uh, this reflexivity should not be thought about something which is just sitting back and reflecting. This reflectivity is based upon serious theoretical reading and engagement. Right. And um, how does one understand the global and the local in doing theory? Yeah, I think in a certain sense, in our discussion with Tupana, we have referred to the global and the local in doing theory. The global and the local has taken a new turn with the buzz about decolonizing and decolonial uh, trend, particularly in the global north, interestingly. And again, I have a certain kind of uh, you know, discomfort. Uh, if you look back at uh, traditions in Indian sociology, you would find that decolonizing, decoloniality were terms which were used by our early sociologists. There's a whole, um, you know, discussion by people like Professor J.P.S. Oberoi, um, you know, and others, uh, Professor Ashish Nandi, uh, Professor T.N. Madan, uh, a whole range of people who are discussing about how do we do, how do we decolonize and how can sociology or social science operate in our context without that kind of critical take to global north. The problem in our context is that when we now in the global south talk about the decolonial, we again look at particular texts which are operating in the global north. And we have no sense of the earlier historical theorizing which took place in our context. Like I was just rewriting a piece on Radha Kamal Mukherjee and, uh, and uh, therefore going back to others like D.P. Mukherjee or maybe somebody like A.R. Desai or even somebody like Y.V. Damle and looking that all of them were negotiating with this question of how do we theorize in the global south. But the categories and the terms and the words they were using were different. To go back to my early observation, there's a tendency now to see the words and terms as equivalent to doing theory. And I think that is something which we need to really engage with seriously, that theorizing is not just a set of words, you know, but it's a process. And that process uh, would be necessary, however the global and the local is defined at different points of uh, time in history. Last question. What would you say is the relationship between theory and method? 
Yeah, I, I think this is something which the book has addressed that, uh, for example, it's quite, uh, you know, uh, you know, when we teach sociology and we often would say that, look, sociology was the study of complex society, uh, social anthropology was the study of other cultures and uh, pre-literate societies. So they adopted uh, an ethnographic method which demanded that you have to stay for long periods of time, stay with people, learn their language, learn their customs in interaction. And, uh, understand society. Why is uh, social? Uh, when you said sociology is the study of complex society, you assume that these complex society would be literate, uh, that you will be getting answers from uh, individuals who would be in a position to either tick, uh, you know, questionnaire, survey method, etc. So the theory of society often leads to a certain kind of methodological turns. For example. Uh, you know, very often the assumption that, uh, say, feminist theory brought about, uh, that you had a certain assumption that the head of the household, which would be the common sense assumption, and therefore my earlier iteration that it's not a choice, theory, doing theory is not a choice, that you have to, uh, you know, interview the head of the household. And the assumption is the head of the household is a man. And the feminist theory would suddenly find feminist research would show that a lot of houses have women-headed households. And particular kind of information, even if the man is the head of the household, wouldn't know, for example, how often has the child been ill? How often has the child been vaccinated? Uh, what kind of you know, domestic details go on in the house would only be possible if you talk to women. So the question of voices talking to women, or the question of communities uh, having certain kind of position and not looking as the individual, as a disaggregated entity whom you can go and ask questions. So theory and method have a very strong link. My favorite reference is always uh, C. Wright Mills, uh, you know, Sociological Imagination, where he has two chapters, one on abstracted empiricism and one on grand theory. And in both, the details are worked out, you know, what kind of theory uh, leads to what kind of method and why the two are inextricably linked. And when we say theory here, we also mean domain assumptions uh, about what is society all about, how are individuals constituted, what kind of social institutions are important in that society. So unless you have a social theory, how, how, how do you do your research? What kind of methods will you adopt? You know? Similarly, you would be more familiar uh, you know, the question of recent debates on multi-sided ethnography, that what happens with migration, displacement, uh, you know, what kind of, or even division of labor in the manner in which new forms of production take place. So these are, uh, the links between theory and method are closed. It has to be addressed both in the way we teach, in the way syllabus is constructed, as well as the context within which theory and uh, method operate, you know. Well, thank you so much for talking to us about this book. And I hope that our listeners go up and pick up a copy and start reading it. And for those who have already read it, they take a fresh look at it after listening to you. So thank you once again. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you.